All right. Welcome, Simon Clark, Life in the Peloton. Um, my old friend, we have been together for, I would say, every year except for one of my years in cycling. I knew Simon. Um, and the very first year I started cycling, I didn't know Simon yet. I was soon to meet him. And we pretty much were stuck together in the beginning and became friends and then um, have ended up together throughout our whole career. Um, welcome, Simon. Thanks Thanks for having me. I mean, enlightened to get the request to be on, uh, on the Peloton podcast and looking forward to it. Great. Um, and something that I have got to know you over the time, uh, I guess, what is it? 15 years, possibly yeah. 15 years. Something, um, like that. something that has always stuck out to me is that the way that you have got to where you are in my eyes is that you're someone who does not leave any stone unturned and the way you approach your training, the way you approach your day-to-day life, um, you're cycling off on the bike and off the bike. Um, you tick every box. And that's something that I've always looked up to in you and something that I sometimes aspire to. And I think, you know, what will Clarkie do now? You know, oh, I've got to bloody do that. You know, <laughs> Clarkie's doing that. I, you know, and that's through our career, there's been competition, but it's a friendly competition that we sort of, you know, push each other. And even though we're slightly different riders, it's that good camaraderie that we have. Um, so what I wanted to talk to you today was... 100% Clarky, you give 100% and I want you to give everyone a little insight to, you know, maybe you don't have to give them all the tricks of the trade, you can keep a couple for yourself, but pretty much break it down. Um, I guess what I want to start with is something pretty simple and something that I like to watch you right at the end um, of your preparation before the race starts is something I noticed we've been in the bus together and everyone has this certain way of preparing for a race. You know, they, whether it's putting kit on a certain way, they put their socks on first, or whether they put their, you know, heart rate monitor on first, but everyone's got their little way. So what I want you to do today is break it down. Getting ready for a race 24 hours before the start line, physically and psychologically. Give us yeah. what Clarkie does. So I'll answer that in a, in a second. I think the, the interesting part to discuss is how I, I kind of developed into into having the mentality that I do. And I suppose looking back to when I was young, around those years that you and I met each other, I'm from an area in Melbourne up in the Dandenongs that isn't near a bike shop. It's quite remote. And so I grew up uh, basically without much support. Um, no one rode around near where I was. Uh, I didn't have anywhere to service anything or, or any support whatsoever. So I basically just grew up with the mentality that if anything's going to happen, I need to make it happen myself. So I did all my own mechanicing for my bikes, even from when I was 13. And I would clean them all, uh, tune them, replace cables. And you probably and didn't think there was anything different for it. You're like, well, that's just how I do it. Yeah, I just, yeah. I honestly didn't 
imagine that everyone else just took their bike to a bike shop and came back fixed and cleaned and ready to race. So, and that also followed on into my preparation for races at that age that all my parents were great support in me uh, for cycling and took me wherever I needed to go. But on an organizational side of things, I had to do everything. So to the extent that like, um, I would book all the flights to any race. I, come, I would find the hotels. Uh, I would figure out when we need to leave, if we had to drive. And quite often I'd actually drive. I have vivid memories of my dad coming to uh, the state championships in, in Wangaratta one year when we were junior. And he came home from work on a Friday night and we jumped straight in the car and I had my uh, learner plates <laughs> and I drove the whole way there and he slept the whole way. And then I raced all weekend, finished my race on the Sunday and drove the whole way home with my learner plates as he slept the whole way back again. Good to get the hours. So basically yeah. I just needed him sitting next to me to, uh, to enable me to drive. So I suppose that mentality of, of ticking every box and, and making sure I didn't leave any stone unturned came from quite a young age when, you know, I was left to, if I wanted to make this dream a reality, it was completely up to me and I had to make it, make it all happen from all forms, from bike preparation to training. And, you know, I had no one up there in the hills that was questioning whether I was training or not, or I didn't have anyone else to ring me if I didn't meet the group or anything. So it was all up to me. And, in a way that was good to teach me that you know because it's true in the when you progress through cycling that if you don't have self-motivation you, you won't you won't get anywhere so uh do you think though i'm just hearing you say that now and maybe you didn't realize at the time but do you think that's actually how you not doing everything but in terms of booking the flight and saying what time you had to leave and where you were going, maybe that's how you wanted it subconsciously anyway because you knew that that's how I want it. And if maybe someone else tried to do it for you, you were like, I know where I want to go and that's the way I want it. So in yeah. a way, in a roundabout way, it could be, it yeah, could be the way that you actually I wanted it. I been just doing it from a younger age. So yeah. Yeah. And I suppose that's grown with me mm. right through my career and on different levels, depending on where I was at. And, but at the end of the day, I just make sure uh, that when I get on the start line, the only thing holding me my back, holding me back, is my ability, mm. and that everything else is taken care of and won't fail on me, and that my only limit is my physical limit. And there's nothing more frustrating than having something else limit your performance that's not your physical maximum. I think. So then, breaking that down, 24 hours before the race, so the day before, let's let's jump to you're in Europe. And you're traveling to the race in the morning. You, like for me, it's like, I like to pack a little lunch for the travel because mm. I feel like I want to get my, I want to get good quality food in when I'm traveling because often sometimes you get stranded on that travel and yeah. you either have to eat just whatever's around yeah. or just go, if I don't want to eat that crap, go hungry till you get to the hotel safe. Yeah. So I like to, that's a little thing that I yeah. like to do. I don't know, like, and then run us in like how you getting. So you're on that yeah. start line ready to go. Yeah. So basically I'm, I wouldn't consider myself a superstitious person at all. Like I, 
if I put my right shoe on before my left or vice versa, it doesn't bother me at all. I, I don't I don't believe in in that. But at the same time, I have my routine that is not a routine that I can't possibly not change. But it's a routine, like you say, to get on the start line 100% prepared and and ready. And that starts from the minute I leave home traveling to a race. And the first thing that I always do, uh, no matter how far or when I travel is, I'm a a really big believer in wearing compression. Uh, And not just socks, but full, complete tights. The whole body? Yeah. From ankle to neck. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> nah. Do you wear those top ones? I don't know anyone nah, that wears nah, those Just the ones. leg tights. Just yeah. the leg tights. And uh, so, yeah. And that's not only a performance theory. I just think that, you know, no one's done research on DVT and the effects of the amount of travel that we do. Mm. You know, no one's done studies on 20 years down the track what effect that has on us and because you can't you know they weren't around 20 years ago so we can't we don't know what it's going to be like when we're six when we're 60 and we flew 200 flights a year mm. and whatnot so i figure it's just one thing that i always do to go you know what it doesn't cost me anything to put them on every single flight and if it can make a difference one for my performance and two for my long-term health then great. So you put the socks on. That's step one. Yeah. So then, uh, like you also do, I always make sure I'm prepared with some food uh, and and particularly water uh, fluids. Oh yeah. Because uh, you know uh, it's quite dehydrating traveling on air in aeroplanes, which has always very dry air. Yeah. And you know you've made an effort to be hydrated, particularly in that week leading into a race to then sit on a flight for however long with breathing dry, thin air. And relying on just picking up water along the way. So you're like, all right, I'm going to have that with me. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, The other big thing for me, which I've got onto recently uh, in travel, is called a back joy. And basically it's this... (laughs) Back joy? Yeah. So I I have a really... what I, I have a lot of lower back troubles. Yeah. And the worst is sitting anywhere for a long period of Should time. Should we be doing this potty lying down? Yeah, <laughs> basically. If it goes out too long, I might need to go get it. <laughs> but uh, basically, it's just a piece of plastic that you sit on. Uh, but it just slightly rotates your pelvis forward in a way that you don't slump in your seat. How big is it? Uh, it's like, a the, I don't know, the size of a small chair. You so take that like, on the plane? Yeah just in my backpack or in my trolley and then you whip it out and huh. sit on it. I've never seen you have that. No? Yeah, no. yeah. Religiously. Back joy. Yeah. And it does wonders. The, the you know, the amount of, and then I, when we go to a race, like a grand tour, I put it on my seat in the, in the team bus and it sits, I sit on it the whole grand tour. Do you sit on it at dinner and stuff? Not no, here? No, no, no. Yeah. Only on travel. Okay. But I'll take it in the team car, hmm. everywhere. Yeah. Because I just, yeah, I have get such a sore back that uh, I just needed to find a solution. And I got onto this this back joy that's, you know, I, for the listeners, it's probably 30 centimetres wide and about, the, it's about a square shape. So probably 30 by 30. Mm. And at the back of it, it kind of curves up and, you know, makes 
uh, space for your coccyx bone there and it just curves up enough that it just gives you that little mm. and the front section is quite flat which goes under your hamstrings and that holds the the it flat so that the back rotates you and when you sit on it you know you it, the rotation is so slight that you would think oh, I can't make a difference but it does but yeah it makes wow, it world and as soon as you don't you don't notice it so much when you've got it you notice it when you don't have it. Once yeah. you start sitting on a little, like using it when you travel a lot, as soon as you don't have it, you curse yourself that huh. it's not. So that's another thing that I always travel with. Yeah, right. Um, and, and sit on. Particularly, you know, if it's a one-hour flight, I could probably get away with it. But then if you've got a one-hour flight and then an hour car drive from wherever you go and suddenly you're sitting for two hours mm. and it starts adding up. So they're just, you know, my theory on one percenters is making sure you arrive at the start line so that you f- that the only limitation is your physical limitation yeah. and making sure that your physical limitation is at 100% as well. Yeah. And so by s- sitting on the, the, the back joy and things like that, it's just making sure that your body isn't affected by the travel and whatnot to get to a race mm-hmm. so that when you're there, you're ready to go. I think they're they're probably the main things in terms of getting to a race. What about when you then, arrive at the hotel? Would you have a special race pre-race ride? Um, normally, I like to get my ride out of the way at before, home. Yeah, before yeah. I go. Um, I don't particularly like getting to an area I don't know, and then trying to ride around to get a training ride in. Do you always and, do efforts the day before the race? Uh, yeah, normally just one kind of lung buster opener just to get the blood flowing and full gas. Get or? a bit of like no, I like a progression effort. So I'll start easy and four or five minutes, and you know uh, wind up to you know one minute. Do you do the same solid. loop every time at home? Um, well, I, I spend a lot of time in different countries, so I probably can't have to say no. Yeah. But uh, I always try and you know, do the similar ride each time. So you get to that climb, you're like, all right, here we go. That's the, it. Yeah. yeah. So I'll probably have my one loop in each Place. country, wherever I am leaving before I, before I go to a race. Uh, then obviously you want to get into a massage, have a nice rub and then, and then get a good feed for dinner. I'm Are quite, you, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I'm quite big on getting a good feed, uh, with the pro tour teams, our Swanias, know what we want and what we need and so we we can rely on them to always have quality food and uh you know being pure carbohydrate and just a little bit of generally white meat uh pre-race and then generally don't go too big on vegetables or anything else will you Um, eat any red meat before race ever i do but uh try to never do it at at the night before or two nights before. What about on a grand tour? On a grand tour, yeah, uh, normally we have red meat the night before the rest day. Yeah. So then you've got the rest day to get over it. What's your theory around? It's all about digestion, I I believe. You know, red meat just takes that longer time to break down. and More energy in the stomach. Yeah, it needs more energy to break it down. And, you know, you just want to be doing everything to make, to help, Give you make it easier for your body, not harder. Mm. And I think 
Have you, you know, ever considered just having baby food, just straight up liquid? I, I would like to do that. I reckon that'd be great. <laughs> oh, crap. Yeah. <laughs> I'm eating such a chore on a bloody... Uh, that should be a joy. Yeah, yeah. It's the only joy you get in nah, the day. It's a chore because you're so hungry and then you just got Wait, to jam You just want to have it like intravenously yeah, into drip, your mouth. The baby drip. <laughs> <laughs> if only. Yeah. So... <laughs> I don't know, I wouldn't leave my hotel room if I didn't have to. <laughs> Keep the legs up. Yeah, right. So, yeah. And what then, about uh, if you get in the room? Are you like, and then you come back to the room, are you like a legs up guy or to go through stretches the night before or? Um, no, no. I'm pretty relaxed about that. I figure doing, you know, any of that kind of stuff, uh, Takes energy. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. I'm big on doing a few little things the morning of the race. I like to get roll straight out of bed, do a few couple of exercises just to warm the, just active, you know, kind of activation exercises to. Well, let's fast forward the to the morning. Yeah. yeah. So you get up in the morning. Yeah. So I try and get to bed at least at a early, reasonable hour, get at least eight, eight hours sleep, depending on when, what time we have to get up for the, for the race. And, um, yeah, uh, apart from that, so then I get up, get straight into a couple of exercises. That also helps me wake up, especially if, you know, you don't want to, don't, I don't like that feeling of getting up and being drowsy for an hour before you can be productive. So I find if you get up and just do a couple of exercises, it gets the body stimulated and you're ready to go. Yeah. And then, yeah, get down for a good breakfast normally we sleep until on until race meal so if the race starts at midday that means we always eat three hours before so that's a nine o'clock nine o'clock uh race meal so i might get up at quarter past eight do some uh, some exercises and then um cruise down to breakfast and Normally, always have a good plate of rice with an omelette. Rice? Yeah. I see you're eating egg yolks these days again. Yeah. Maybe you couldn't eat egg yolks. I went off them for a long time. Yeah. What happened there? They caused me major grief. And then slowly, I went, I think I went nearly four years without them. And then, uh, yeah. How'd you get yourself back on the yolks? The doc said, maybe, you know, your intolerance has passed. You can start. Uh, start reintroducing them and I did and no problems <laughs> so yeah and the same with, with dairy as well I went off I was off that at the same time <laughs> and yeah now no no problems so, so your typical breakfast if we can call it that is eggs and rice yeah omelette and rice and avocado <laughs> for a bit of flavour lovely and yeah and then uh, always make sure generally I Another thing, the night before, I, I like to always put my numbers on, prepare that oh. the night before, just because uh, I just like to get that out of the way. I see that as a chore. It's not about a, uh, it's not a, sorry, a superstition, superstition that i got to do it the night before, but I just like having that so Done. I'm ready. Yeah. Uh, and I like doing that in the race meeting. Yeah. You know, so you, then you're like, you don't have to listen to the race. Meeting. <laughs> I can just do my numbers now. <laughs> uh, normally I'm quite involved in race meetings, so that doesn't really happen for me. But yeah, I like to have that pin, pinned on and ready to go. So I'm good to, so when I get on the bus, yeah. So finish breakfast, get back up to my room, uh, 
I'm a big fan. This is a particularly a grand tour thing, but I, one pet hate I have is when the masseurs ask for our luggage before breakfast. Yeah, that is annoying that. And at the start of every grand tour, I make a special request that we can always that's a good idea luggages after breakfast that's a good trick I'm a massive I always have to brush my teeth after breakfast yeah and I hate having to take my toiletry bag on the bus and 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 the worst is actually getting straight out of bed and before you've had a coffee had anything to eat and pack all your luggage yeah that just cracks me yeah but obviously, some some days on a grand tour, it's logist, you know it's logistically impossible, and that has to happen, and, and you just deal with it. But as a as a preference, I like to always come back to my room after breakfast. I'll even have breakfast a fraction earlier just to give myself a bit more time. Mm. Get back up to my room, brush my teeth, pack my stuff up, make sure I've got everything from the race, so I'm not doing it too rushed. And it's all about and just I'm staying relaxed, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think. You know, as soon as you start rushing, you forget things, using unnecessary energy and uh, and whatnot. So, yeah, then get on the bus, always get stuck into a bit of music on the on Spotify. In your headphones? The, yeah. Yeah. On my headphones. What are you going? Are you going sort of like heavy, like Metallica, or are you going like... Um, I'm a bit of a dance music fan. Oh. Yeah, I'm right into the... David Guetta and stuff? Yeah. I'm not too... I, I'm a big Ministry of Sound fan. Oh, Ministry Got of all Sound. The collections I haven't heard that for a while. Since, since 2002, <laughs> when they started, I've got every annual and every chill-out sessions and every clubber's guide that, and, that they've ever done. So So now I know what's going on behind the heads. Yeah. Yeah, a bit of Ministry of Sound. Obviously, that's, you know, they don't, you know, they have a lot of different artists, so it's not like, you know, you listen yeah, to yeah. Ministry of Sound. Mm. But, yeah, generally, that's what I've got going on. Mm. Yeah, and obviously, pre-race is more like one of the annuals and post-race is one of the chill-out sessions. But, yeah, I generally stick stick with Ministry of Sound, big Ministry of Sound. Yeah, yeah right. Didn't know that. Yeah, I just like the beats, and they do good beats. And you can just do stuff without... Yeah, and just, it's not so much about, like, getting super psyched, but just, I like, just getting into that rhythm, you know, you're gonna you're out for a long, hard day, and you just want to build up and... Yeah, great. Get, well, that's, that's a good little insight to Simon's little preparation there. Um, just, I wanted to touch on something there that you sort of mentioned, but you didn't go into too deep, uh, or something we didn't really mention, was one big thing is the bike preparation. Um... And we were discussing this a little while ago that, you know, at the end of the day, it comes down to you checking your own bike and the material. Your mechanics are looking after, well, there's eight bikes for that, for the race, but then there's another eight spare bikes and there's another eight second spare bikes. And, you know, there's a million bikes going around. So what do you do with your bike? What's your typical checklist when you go over your bike the night before the race? Yeah, look, uh, I'm... I'm really particular with my bike and, uh, you know, it's, it's always a tricky juggle with the mechanics to not really, to not feel like you have them feel like you're taking, doing their job. Stepping on their toes. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, cause you know, at the end of the day, that's their profession is to, to do your bike. But, uh, you know, I'm really particular with my position. I really like that to be, I suppose like everyone does. Uh, likes it to be the same across all their bikes, but uh, I just take particular attention to to how you know that I measure that and make sure I measure that on uh, 
the same way on all the bikes because mm. quite a lot of people don't, you know, they get their mechanic to send their measurements from the team so they can put it on their home bike, but the mechanics used a proper uh, jig, measuring jig, jig yeah. and then you get home and do the same with a tape measure, but you don't know where the jig's taken the exact measurement mm. from. So you could have a seat height number, but that's not going to be the same seat height number. So a lot of people don't take into account the way people measure seat height mm. or or anything, to be honest. Yeah. And so at the end of the day, you really need to be present and measure everything. So, and any chance I get when I have multiple bikes at the same spot is try and match them all, Sink and them then and there. then take a note. You know, I've got thousands of uh, separate notes on my phone, <laughs> like in the notes section of bike yeah. measurements this race, bike measurements this race, huh. and then I, you know, I have a whole bloody history of them just so I take it home and I take the home bike measurement and then I'll note that as well in the on the phone so then I can take that to the race and is that to see how much they change over the time or just to make sure they're all coinciding with each other or uh, I don't use them as a history I just have the history you just haven't deleted them Yeah, yeah 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 okay but uh yeah I just want the intention is to make sure that they're all the same yeah and you know, that also goes for lever height and making sure the levers are flat and everyone's got their whole different theories on on how to measure things and what about make sure with they're the, straight. Like, and I see some guys on the start line and I think it's a good idea to do it, but I just always forget to do it. But they check the um, quick release to make sure the wheel's yeah. put in. Do you redo that every time? No, nah, that's one thing I don't do. Yeah, you just leave that. Yeah, and the one big thing that I sometimes I'll check the front wheel, but the back wheel. What people don't realise is that quite often when you close a rear quick release, it actually that rear skewer closes on your hanger, mm. and when you adjust that tension. It might that does not might squeeze the hanger in uh, and alters at a the different at a different angle. So the mechanics just spent all night preparing your bike, and then it only takes you to come at the start line, feel the tension of the skewer, and go, "Oh, that's not tight enough." Tighten it up, and then slam it shut, and not realize that you've squeezed the hanger in another two mil to what the bike's been tuned at because it hasn't been tuned with the skewer at that tension and that'll affect your gears and then you'll go back to the car complaining mid-race <laughs> that your gears aren't working. Do you know this because you've I've done seen it that? happen. Also, have you done it yourself? No, uh, I haven't done it myself, but I've seen people do it. Yeah, right. And, uh, yeah, so, no, not too phased about the skewers. Um, but, yeah, big thing just like, and even just like tweaking things like, I'm a big fan of making sure I've got good wheels with hubs that are humming nicely Mm. or if I can take out a seal in the free hub just to make it spin that little bit better, you know, I'll I'll just get it taken (laughs) out, ask the mechanic to go, you know, Mate, you know, do we really need that seal in there? Or you can see we that get six that pack out? of beers, mate? That ain't helping. <laughs> that that's just weighing me down and yeah. slowing down that free hub. So, you know, just little things like that uh, to try and make sure that the bike's at its optimum. Mm. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, um, now going into the racing. Um, simple question: How do you ride in the peloton? And that might seem pretty easy, but to the naked eye, unless you've raced, even if you've raced a club race, you've got some idea. 
then if you've raced like a sort of an amateur race or even a semi-professional race, you've got another idea too, which is good. But I always remember when I came into the, the world tour, um, I was pretty much blown away by, I call it the washing machine effect, where you make a big effort to get to the front and you're like, yeah, I'm here. I'm finally here. I've cracked it. I'm at the front. God damn it. Bloody made it. Next thing you know, you relax and you go, oh, yeah, it's okay. I'm not quite at the front, but that's all right. I'm still near it. And then like two seconds later, you're like, what the hell? I'm at the ass again. I'm at the back. So it's a simple thing like that or even coming into a climb. What's your tricks for riding the bunch? Because I know Clarky, you're a good wheel. And often when we're in the same team or when we weren't in the same team too, I always sort of look, why is Clarky? Oh, there he is up there. I'll move up there because you're always in a good position. So what's your yeah, little trick there? I suppose there? I, a lot of that came from when you and I raced together on the track back when we were young. Uh, I really believe that track riding um, really had a massive influence on my bike handling and bunch riding. And uh, I think that without growing up having done that, I would be a different bike rider today. And it's one thing that I really appreciate and I see... You know, particularly in Australia, the track is kind of floundering a bit, and it's really sad to see because, you know, we, you and I both grew up like I. When I joined Carnegie Caulfield Cycling Club in '98, I think, or '99, it was track season. Yeah. So the track I started on the track technically. Yeah. You know, I went down there and I'm like, I want to join the club, and they said, Yeah, come down to track training. And my first ride was on a track bike. Yeah. So I, I would, yeah, and I'm forever grateful for that upbringing. And, you know, just riding on the hip and, and you know, placing yourself in the handicap, lining yourself up to start the sprint, you know, those kind of things that you learn back then, you know. The close racing you. in track racing yeah. that you get comfortable even if you get bumped or whatever, you're just yeah. comfortable with that. It becomes second nature. Yeah. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. And just positioning, you know, track is so about positioning. Like in road, if you're one wheel forward or one wheel back, you know, it's not the end of the world, you know, you'll still make it round. But if you're in the one wrong, one wrong wheel out on a track race, coming into a sprint, that's, you're gone. Yeah. Like, you, if you're on the hip, <laughs> you ain't going anywhere. So how have you so, translated that into the road then? I think it just came naturally that when I, you know, I was used to, I grew up, you know, not the most powerful bike rider and knew particularly on the track that I had to be in the box seat to have any chance of winning this race. I couldn't be one wheel out or I'd have no chance. So it wasn't guaranteed that I was going to win, but I had to give my, if I wasn't in the perfect spot, I didn't even have a chance of winning. So what about then? So I tried to take that theory into road racing and, and say, okay, you know, Instead of just trying to be in a good position, what is the best position hmm. and try and be in that? You know, What's your- you look at the front and go, oh, the front seems like it's a good position, so I should be in a good position, which is at the front. Hmm. But it's like, where's the most efficient position and, um, and the safest position? Do you, what, do you struggle to understand guys who don't see that? Not at all. I think that, you know, someone who didn't grow up doing the track, how are they to know? Yeah. They can sit at the back and, you know, there's many ways to skin a cat. Like yeah, that's true. You know, you don't have to sit at the front and to win bike races. And uh, But, you know, I think 
you give yourself a pretty good chance, a better chance of mishap, uh, a less chance of mishap and a better chance of winning by riding good position, although it's not vital. What would you say then if you were coaching a group of young guys approaching racing, how would you instruct them to ride the bunch? Well, it's a tricky one because... Um, you know, when we talk about bunch riding, unless you're riding in like the pro tour peloton, I think yeah, it, you take it on quite a different level to the you know, bunch riding is quite different as we know it, basically, to any other bunch riding that anyone would do. Yeah. And so to give, I mean, general advice for me is... Uh, you know, I've over the years I've learned to ride to give more space in the bunch. So I'm really big on not riding right up the ass of the guy in front of me. Yeah. Particularly not. Well, you know, it, it, you give yourself that extra half a meter of of leeway if there's going to be a crash to be able to avoid it. But also, I find when you ride that little bit off the wheel you actually open up a heap more options mm. on riding through the bunch. Like if, if a guy goes one way and you're just a bit back off, you, you can dive left or right. Whereas if you ride up him, you've only got one way to go. Mm. And I really find that riding through the bunch is much easier like that. And, yeah. and it's much safer. Would you... And, sorry. Yeah. I was going to say, just hearing you say that, it's something I say to a lot of people is that Maybe yourself and I, we had to learn not having, like, we know there's guys in the peloton who've got sort of big engines that were juniors and they were just strong guys. And I feel like when they came, they were inevitably going to make it into the world tour. But when they made it here, they didn't really learn any lessons along the way because if they ever wanted to go to the front, what did they do? They just stepped out and they rode around the outside because they could. And I always remember that wasn't essentially the case for me as I grew up and maybe also for you that you had to find another way to the front yeah. um, and that's what I was sort of thinking about that when you just said that then it is better to go through the bunch some people wouldn't agree with that because they don't know how to do that exactly but you've got to find a safe way to do it but at the end of the day you need to race with the mindset to get to the final the most efficient way possible because there's no use continually burning down the side of the bunch just to be in good position because you can have all the best position in the world but if you've got no legs left then you're not going anywhere mm. and so you're better off being in a ship position with good legs and trying to do something about that later than blow your legs so you need to always ride with the man- that mentality of uh, economy and yeah. saving yourself and obviously the best way to do that is is riding in the middle of the bunch. Yeah. Uh, obviously, there's a time and a place for which style you take. But, you know, I have a rule of thumb that unless it's like super important to be at the front, I never ride to the, up the side of the bunch on my own. Yeah, it's sort of like last emergency. Yeah. I've got to do it. Yeah. If yeah. there's a corner coming and an important corner and, you know, you turn right and it's 20% for a K, you got to be at the front. Yeah. <laughs> But unless that's happening, I'll sit on the side of the bunch and wait until someone's coming past 
towing someone else up or bringing biddens or whatever and I'll get on them and they can take me up yeah. because you know every every bit counts and you know why move up when someone else can move you up I've and, always yeah I've yeah. always been of that theory too that what you just said then is the days you've got really good legs I find I waste a lot of energy because I'm feeling good yeah because I can move up and so back to that old theory of what we just said before is that I'm feeling good. Oh, I'm just quickly moving up the outside on this climb here. If I was feeling shit, I would just be like, oh, I can't move up here. I'm, I'm screwed. Ultimately, in the end, I'm saving more energy and probably better on that day. Yeah. It's exactly. funny how it works. Your mindset yeah. sort of changes when you can, but you need that mindset of shit legs when you've got good legs. Yeah. Man. And so I suppose the other big thing that I can, uh, one of my big theories, which uh, I actually... Um, I wouldn't say taught to Durbo, to Luke Durbridge, but I never forget in Torino, it probably was in 2013, I reckon, and he really used to struggle a lot with uh, positioning. And I just gave him one little heads up and I said, you got to think small circles and not big circles. And that sounds like so simple, but if you can ride in a bunch doing that then you'll ride good position what do you mean by that so basically what you were saying so if it's a washing machine you go up on either side you get stuck in the middle and then you get spat out the back so that's a big circle yeah when you you know you're doing a full circle of the bunch basically yeah and what you want to try and do is do circles of two or three people yeah so basically what you do is you ride, follow someone up to the front, and then when they get to the front, you sit, you don't pass them, stay with them if you can, and then as soon as someone passes you on the side, you go to move up again. And it's just, you always, as soon as you get to the front and people come over you from the windward side, you just, you're constantly order, immediately pushing to get back out again. And because that is the outside is the part where everyone's moving up. And so if you can continually do that, basically like you do when you're in an echelon, when you, you go over the top and then you're coming back and then you're waiting for the first opportunity to push back out to go to the front again. But you're doing it always on someone else's wheel. It's just a continual movement, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. But you do it in small floating circles mm. that you avoid having to do that massive effort when you're like 20 back stressing in the gutter getting hooked by whoever else <laughs> and trying to just get back into the mix of it again and the stress that comes with that but if you can just do those little circles uh, it makes such a difference and you'll find you use a lot less energy doing it and yeah back in the day I said to Devo just try and do little circles it makes a whole difference and you know along, obviously he just started racing pro but from then, I saw him do a progression in riding position, mm. unbelievable. Like, not, it's hard to find pros that are bad at riding position and, and suddenly learn how to and become good at riding position. Generally, they get pigeonholed pretty early, and that's kind of where they stay. Yeah, that's true. He and has so, made a big, big you know, progression. Derbo's awesome at riding position now, yeah. and, you know, there's little tricks to doing it. So if you're not good at riding position, it's not all over. Yeah. There's hope. Derbs, hang in there, buddy. <laughs> All right, well, um, last sort of thing I wanted to ask you is because you've made that progression now and now it's a bit of a, 
a point of playing the teacher to a degree. Um, you're moving into a captain's role. Um, and what I want to ask you is, how do you prepare now for being a road captain to being out on the road, making those calls and being confident in your calls too? And I think knowing you, preparation goes into that. You're not just making those calls on a whim, even though you've got experience and you can and probably have to make calls sometimes without preparation. I think you would put some preparation into the races. What are you, what are you doing there now? Yeah, so I think basically the most important thing that I try and maintain is to not sacrifice my personal performance because I think, you know, you can't make decisions if you're in Gruppetto. You need to be at the pointy end of the race. So it's really important to take it as an add-on job and not, okay, I'm just going to be road captain and forget that I'm trying to perform because you actually, it's really important to be riding well when you're doing that, I, I believe. Leading by example too. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, I, I really try to make sure firstly that everything we discuss in terms of preparation, I replicate uh, even in, in a different role. But then on top of that, I really do my homework on on stages and uh, the stage, you know, basically what a director would do, going through uh, looking at the, the parkour both in elevation and on the map. And then a big factor of that is the, the weather conditions. So I, I always study them very closely in various towns along the way and I have an app on my phone that gives me hourly wind directions and strengths so mm. I can really look at when the wind is going to be strong and which direction it's going to be in and how that's going to affect the race. Because do you do you at that point, sorry to interrupt, is that you're going, you know what, I probably will get all this information from the director but if we don't, I want to know this myself. Is that the theory you have or you just want to double know everything? Uh, no, I just I've just got that no un- no stone unturned theory, yeah. and I don't want to be you know it's like relying on the mechanic to do the measurements that you do on your bike at home with a tape measure, and he's going to replicate them on your race bike with a with a jig, like they're not going to be the same. Mm. And the way you read a race book or read a map is not going to be the same as the director reads the map. Maybe you see things that he doesn't or he sees things that you don't but if the important thing is that if you do double up you're going to see more things Mm. and so you go into the race with them with in mind of your interpretation and then any information you get on top of that from the director you can you can filter into to what you've had in mind and and base your decisions off that and so i really find that that's vital in in calling shots along the way. Yeah. And the other the other important thing that I really try to look at is uh, in one day races is the start list and, and mm. other teams. I really try and think about how other teams will want to ride the race uh, depending on which combination of riders they've brought and how they would intend to ride. So you can factor that in. And then in a grand tour or in any stage race, it's important to factor in not only who's racing and what their plan is, but also like the classification and how certain teams and riders will ride according to where their position is in the race. Which sometimes can be confusing because you can be like, I always remember years ago, 
there was a breakaway gone and everything should be wrapped up and all of a sudden Cofferdus got on the front and started drilling on this hill. I was like, what's going on here? And then someone had to point out to me, ages down the track, they're racing for third on team's classification. You're like, oh my God, I didn't even think about third on team's class. Exactly. So and you've got to think of all those things. Yeah. So, you know, and even things like the points classification that maybe you don't even have a sprinter on your team. But if you're trying to, you know, organize to attack or ride the front or set up a stage and in the middle of the stage is mega sprint points that one sprinter might be able to get over a climb and another one might and be able to bag some points like that's going to have a huge effect on how the stage is raced yeah so those kind of things you you know i do you really need to take into account and the final thing that i do on top of all that research is with the garmin and Mm. you know honestly since i come to cannondale i don't know how i would race without a garmin uh because we have, I have for every single race, the GPX file loaded on my uh, Garmin. Yeah. And I constantly switch between both the map tracker of the direction of the roads and wait, the wait. corners. So just because I've only really learned, I've only just started using Garmin and I've only just learned what a GPX file is. I'm pretty sure not many, everyone knows what GPX, what is a GPX file? So basically it's a file that they make uh, on Google Maps or whatever on the computer, which which basically highlights the route that you're going to ride on the map. Yep. So you've got on your Garmin the maps of where you're riding with all the streets and whatnot. And then you have a highlighted route of the one that is the actual race course. Hmm. So you can see corners and all that kind of stuff coming up. The other benefit from that is on the map screen, you can have... I run a kilometers to go uh, screen, which tells me how many Ks from the finish line. And it's from GPS, so it's it's correct. And it's absolutely spot on. Yeah, I'm going to put that on mine. The biggest thing I run is, yeah, the kilometers done because you like to know all all your referencing is done from kilometers done. So, okay, after so many kilometers, it's this climb or it's that climb or the feed is after 80K. You never get told how... Yeah, the feeds at 50k to go. Yeah, exactly. So you need the kilometers done, uh, you know, covered because you need that for a lot of your referencing. But it's also important to have kilometers to go, Hmm. which I use a lot uh, just because uh, race books aren't always accurate, but GPXs are. Hmm. And so you have a spot on, as particularly coming down even to the final closing Ks if you're doing lead outs or whatnot. Totally. Sometimes I'm calling the radio, is it 4K or yeah. and three and a half? And yeah. there you've got it on your Garmin. So yeah. now the other big, uh, big influence on my information is, is, the ma- is the profile page on the Garmin. So basically when you, without a, without a GPX file loaded, when you go to the elevation page it just shows you your last however many k you want to zoom in on what you've ridden for the day but when you load a gpx and follow a course it gives you that whole course Mm. on the elevation page and you have a dot on the screen of where you you are on that and the dot never moves but the, the the profile uh 
can slowly scrolls across the screen as you complete the course. Cool. So you can always see what's coming up. Yeah, and you're like halfway up this climb, you're like, yeah, yeah. how high to go. And so obviously, and that and that elevation screen has a grid on it, and you can, and so I particularly specifically set the grid to two and a half k per block, and so then I know that every two blocks is 5k mm. and four blocks is 10k. Yeah. So I can know exactly how far to go. Like if the climb's going up and it's two blocks from the top, it's 5k yeah, from yeah. the top. And so I find that, you know, when you're in the box riding up Alp d'Huez in the tour and you're one block from the top, you know, it's two and a half k to go and you're nearly there. Yeah. And also like coming into, um, you know, getting back to race books not being accurate. If you're flying along the flat and then suddenly you need to hit a climb, I can see how many blocks away that climb starts. That turn, yeah. yeah. And that might not be accurate on the race book from the kilometres uh, covered because you might have, you know, they might not have uh, noted them accurately. Mm. But with the with the profile you can see that kind of accurate information it's just getting back to being accurate and checking everything yeah and so based on that information you can really um you can make good decisions and even seeing like how steep descents are on the on the mat on the little elevation thing so when you think about it when you get a race book you have like a 12 10 centimeter Profile the width of an A4 piece of paper to cover a 200k race. You're never going to be able so to see it all. It's there. it's not ac- like it's not. They don't. You don't have every kicker and every little two one two k climb in there. Like they, they don't even look like anything. No, yeah. But on the Garmin, when you've got it zoomed in that far, it gives you every single little change in elevation. Mm. So it actually becomes most effective that screen on those undulating days that are flat days yeah that you don't know what's around the next corner and you can see on your screen oh it just goes up for another 500 meters then it goes down but then you got like a k kicker Mm. and so you can really use that as good information on where would be a good place to attack if you're not feeling good Hmm. where you should be in the bunch or whatnot so and then on top of that using that information to make quality shots to making decisions when to chase is a good area yeah. or whatever. Yeah, yeah, sweet. So, well, mate, tell, I tell you what, it sounds like you've got a bit of work still to do tonight. Like, it's. Um, Get us stuck into my dome work. <laughs> thanks yeah. for coming on the potty, mate. No, thanks for having me. It was um, very uh, there's insightful. There's a bit of insight there for people out there to get that little bit of advantage riding in the bunch. I reckon. I reckon. 100%. 100%. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Beautiful, mate. <laughs>